So this morning is Sunday, December 12, 2010. Uh, we're going to be discussing habilitating a holiday. I would say that we were rehabilitating the holiday, except to rehabilitate something it had to once be whole. It had to once be right and then receive an injury so that it could be rehabilitated. In this case, uh, I want to try to have some sense of balance in between the good that can come out of this season and its obvious pagan historical roots. Uh, we showed you the funny video about Santa Claus in the beginning. Uh, number one, because we wanted to joke, and number two, we wanted to make light of the fact that the entire church world seems to just feel so threatened by a fat guy in a red suit. I, I, I have a hard time with that. But I want to confess, as I wrote in the bulletin for you in the pastor's corner, there have been years that I celebrated Christmas and I dressed up like Santa and handed out gifts to kids, and there have been years that I refused to because it offended my conscience. Uh, I think that that pendulum swings in two directions, and I want to leave room for you to work all of these things out with fear and trembling in your own heart. I really do. Uh, I wrote in the bulletin, Corinthian, or rather Romans 14, 5, uh, where you see a couple little periods. It's because I took out a section that speaks of food sacrifice to idols, but listen to how appropriate this may be. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. One of the reasons that I wanted to put this in the bulletin is whatever you think. I mean, Matthew and his family often celebrate Hanukkah. I think that's awesome. Uh, eight days of gift giving is better than one. <laughs> whatever you think about this holiday, we do need to leave room for our brothers and make sure that what we are doing is not destructive to the people that are around us, but rather is conducive to the flowing of the Spirit and uh, love. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You know, Titus uh, in the first chapter, somewhere around the 15th verse, speaks of people that because they're depraved, everything they see is depraved. Everything they see is crooked. But he said, to the pure, all things are pure. There are obvious limits to this verse. There are some things that there is absolutely nothing pure in. Having said that, I'm convinced in my own heart that despite all of the things that I'm going to teach you today about the history of the Christmas celebrations, there is something that you can find in it that is pure, something worth clinging to and something that it was good. But it might come from some unexpected sources. It is difficult when you have a church campaign to do something like keep Christ in Christmas and you discover he never was. <laughs> Never, not, not at any time, was Jesus the central figure of Christmas. But before we get into all of those things, I thought maybe we could start somewhere right around 376 A.D. 
between 376 AD and 386 AD, that 10 year period, depending on who you talk to, uh, the advent of what is called the Julian calendar occurs. This is the first time in world history that the word Christmas becomes associated with December 25th. So if you're counting years here then, this is more than three centuries have passed, longer than our country, the United States, has been in existence. From the birth of Jesus to the first celebration of Jesus' birth, as recorded by world history, in the month of December. Because biblically speaking, of course, he's not born in December. I mean, not even close. If you're taking notes, where this story is going to start today is in 771 years B.C. This is the time period between 771 and 717 B.C. This is the time period that Romulus and Ramus, the founders of Rome, got their origins. Now, when you read about these things, as with most history, it's surrounded by myth and lore. And it leaves you wondering what is true and what's not true. Is there anybody in here that really believes that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree? Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But doesn't it say something about a nation when you examine what they say about their own origins? You can look at the stories that people hold up as idyllic. You can look at the things that people want to personify their nation and learn something about it. In some cases, it's pure propaganda. But even in propaganda, you can look and see what a country values. Would it surprise you to know that Romulus and Ramus had a mother named Rhea Silva? <clears throat> she was a virginal goddess figure. How about that? Who was raped by Mars the Roman god of war. So Rhea Silva was a virgin yet pregnant, and Mars was the god of war. He buried her alive, and her children survived. That's the origins of the story of Rome. Romulus and Remus are the product of the god of war and a virginal goddess. You have eyes to see, you may begin to get them more widened as we preach today. These two boys had no substance of their own, so they were nursed by a female. You want to fill in that gap? Wolf. A she wolf. Maybe this brings new meaning to the word wolves in sheep's clothing. When you're nursed by wolves, when you are the product of violence, when your own history includes the merging of war and the worship of a goddess, it produces something. If this is what you want to present to the world about yourself, you have some of the major components behind the spirit of Rome. Would you agree with me, at least if we're not speaking about a metaphysical sense, Speaking in the sense of a metaphor, would you agree with me that Rome extended way beyond its borders? I mean, when you take a dollar out right now, it says e pluribus unum on it. Uh, that's not the language of our country, is it? There's a column sitting up here. Some of you can't see it. Matthew's computer's on it. Whose design and style is that? 
And yet, we use them. That one came from a wedding done in this church. How about that? It's everywhere. And where were its origins? Being nursed by a wolf. Well, as you move forward with the Roman story, somewhere around 55 B.C., maybe the most famous Roman of all, 55 B.C., Julius Caesar invaded Germania. Now, Germania is a giant area of northern Europe. And... When he invaded Germania, it brings the Roman culture into direct contact. The Romans are the major world power of the day. It brings them into direct contact with the Norse traditions, the Norse mythologies, and the Norse celebrations. Now, when I say Norse, that's N-O-R-S-E. This is kind of an abbreviated way to say Northmen. It means all of the people that live north of the Middle East, but specifically those who spoke a kind of northern German, uh, Scandinavians, what you would think of as Nordic peoples. A lot of us in this room are descendants from them today. This is really interesting when you think about where we get some of our culture from, huh? Mm -hmm. Now one thing about Northmen is their winters are particularly brutal. I mean, obviously that part of the world has very, very difficult winners. Because of that, they are innately familiar with something called the winter solstice. I want to read to you about a winter solstice. The winter solstice occurs exactly when the Earth's ax axial tilt is farthest away from the sun. This is the one day of the year where the planet Earth is the furthest away from its light source. The win Though the winter solstice lasts only an instant in time, the term is also a turning point to midwinter or the first day of winter to refer to the day on which it occurs. More evident to those in high latitudes, this occurs on the shortest day and longest night, and the sun's daily maximum position in the sky is the lowest. Get this. The lowest number of light hours... The highest number of dark hours, and the sun itself never achieves the height. It's the day in the year in which the sun is at its lowest point in the sky. It's most evident to people in cultures of the north, hence the north being. Now when this happened, it, it gave a seasonal significance, because from this point forward, there would be a gradual, gradual lengthening of nights and shortening of days would be reversed. In other words, right now, have you all noticed that as we move into December, it seems to get dark earlier and earlier and earlier? That will reach its climax smack dab in the middle of December. Somewhere around December 20th, 21st, 22nd, right in there. And from that point forward, the days begin to lengthen again, and it grows more and more light every day. So the cultures of the Nordic peoples, of the Norsemen, looked forward to this day as a day of celebration that they had kind of turned the corner, so to speak. And they celebrated this with 12 days of something that they called Yule. Yule was a month of their year. Yule got uh, attached to a lot of things, hence a Yule log. When you say Yule log, this was the log that they went out in December. They cut down, and it needed to be so big that it could burn 
for 12 days inside of a Viking-like longhouse. Right? Now when they did this, because they knew that there was still winter left and a bunch of it, they would kill some animals that they didn't think they could feed all the way through the winter. And when they killed these animals, this gave us a food celebration, a special meal, a tree inside the house, and 12 days celebration. Interestingly enough, the proximity to alcohol in all these is amazing. It just so happens that this time is also the time period in which the, the wheat and the barley that you harvested earlier had been harvested, processed, and now fermented long enough to be good to drink. Right? So we have beer, sacrifice, and a tree inside the house. And because they go cut down the tree, they also took the time to grab things like holly and evergreen and decorate their houses with it. This was an ancient, ancient, ancient practice of the Norse people. It was not a Roman practice. But as the Romans went into Germania and then Britannia and all of those areas, they began coming into contact with this and they had, well, they had cultures and customs of their own. And they did what everybody does. By the way, do you think in Wyoming anybody is celebrating Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> Why do you know what it is in Texas? Because we have a blending of cultures here that doesn't exist in Wyoming, right? Well, as the Romans came into contact with the Norse people, they began to blend and mix and match their customs. This commingling of traditions included the Roman traditions that had been present for hundreds of years. On December 17th, for the Romans, there was a, a special festival. It was called Saturnalia. It's where we get the word Saturday, by the way. It was in honor of the god Saturn. How about that? So if you have real problems with the pagan roots of, of Christmas, I want you to boycott Saturday as well. And Monday, and Thursday, Thursday, and it, it, it kind of never, never really, really stops. But in any case, Saturnalia, December 17th, was a seven-day feast. And this seven-day feast was the famous favorite of the Romans. And one of the reasons that it was the favorite is because it was the only Roman holiday in which all people gave gifts to each other. It was a reversal of roles holiday. The masters cooked meals for the slaves. And the slaves got to live like masters. It was kind of a crazy mixed up Mardi Gras. As if Mardi Gras is not mixed up enough. Anyway, everybody in society was suddenly equal on this day. And the Romans liked it because it was a seven day excuse to get drunk. It was so bad that Caligula, y'all know who Caligula is? He wanted to shorten it. He wanted to shorten it to five days. He's among the most perverse of all the Roman emperors, but he said, look, we, we can't stay drunk this entire month or nothing will get done. Right? <laughs> Special dinners for slaves, gifts exchanged, but maybe the most important Roman thing that happened during the month of December was they have a strange co-merging of gods. One is called Mithras, and the other is Sol Invictus. You may have seen Sol Invictus on clothing. Amazing, amazing how American marketing involves Roman pagan idolatry. 
Sol Invictus, I know I've seen on sunglasses or something. Some of you are nodding your heads. I don't get to shout much. <laughs> Mithras and Sol Invictus both have some very similar uh, background to the point where you can barely tell them apart. Uh, Mithras was said to be cut out of a rock. That was his origins. It's got a little Daniel 2 ring to it, doesn't it? Cut out of a rock. But Mithras and Sol Invictus were both the Roman sun god, the bringer of light. So you have to imagine the Romans are kind of excited. They have conquered the Germanic areas. They've gone into Britannia. They've seen the Yule celebrations that are 12 days long. They're like, we kind of like this. And you know what we'll do with those big trees we brought in the house? We will wrap them in lights and light bonfires because this is the time that our gods of light are pushing back the winter darkness. How many Americans are going to buy Christmas trees? I bought mine just the other day. Do you know there's 350 billion Christmas trees growing in the soil year-round in the United States? 350 million. That's enough for every man, woman, child in the country to buy one. That's big business, isn't it? And what is its origin? Its origin is emerging between the Norse people's Yule Law and the Romans' worship of the god Mithras or Sol Invictus. You want to hear the real kicker? You know when Mithras was born? December 25th. They celebrated his birth on December 25th. So what happened if you're a Roman is you see this winter solstice celebration going on. You see this 12-day thing. You already have reason to celebrate during that time. And you're like, let's make the block party bigger. This is what happens. And it begins to grow and become part of their celebration. Well, I told you that Julius Caesar was one of the most popular of all Romans. And in 55 BC, when he launched this campaign, he was just a military leader, maybe the most prominent, but still locked in mortal combat with other military leaders. Well, by the time 49 BC had come along, he had obtained uh, the equivalent of supremacy. He was an emperor. And from 49 B.C. to 44 B.C., he began to establish Rome as we think of Rome. Rome with an emperor or a dictator, depending on the time period, and then a senate. And the senate was really subservient to him. When he died in 44 B.C., a comet was cited. And in 42 B.C., Poets began to write about it. The most famous is Virgil. And they ascribed to him godlike status, saying he ascended into, <clears throat> into the heavens. Once that happens in Rome, for maybe the first time, we have competitors with Mithras and Sol Invictus. We have a competitor to all of the Roman gods of worship. And for the first time, we would have what is known as the cult of emperor worship. So among the Roman gods, there were now Romans, right? So we kind of had these saint-like figures, except they were divine as well, if you will. This becomes really interesting because you know from history and Shakespeare and all the things you were forced to study in school and thought would never be important, that after Brutus stabs Julius Caesar, and there is an uh, extended battle 
a young man whose name is Octavius, or sometimes called Octavian, wins out in Rome. The Senate wanted to show their allegiance to him. And because now Rome was taking on a new cult of emperor worship type standing, they called him the August One, the revered or worshipful one, Augustus Caesar. He took upon himself the title Son of God. And he did that because he was Julius Caesar's successor. So he was the Son of God. I'll tell you all the things that he did, and some of you have heard these before, but before we do that, I want to give you some background to the city Caesarea Philippi. Because if you've ever felt awkward being in being enlightened to the extent that you now know more about Christmas than a lot of people do. And it puts you in a position, how do we worship the Lord? What do we do amongst all of this pagan background? I mean, after all, how is Christ supposed to stand out in the center, in the backdrop of this grotesque display? Well, Caesarea Philippi is a city that teaches us something about that. In 20 BC, a king, a Jewish king, kind of Jewish king, he's really Edomian, but in any case, he had the title king of the Jews, named Herod the Great, revived the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he dedicated it solely, specifically, for the worship of Augustus. And the reason that he did this was he wanted to make sure that Israel, who had been conquered by Rome, was honored by Rome, protected by Rome. So what better way to do that than the king of the Jews to recognize Augustus Caesar as the son of God. Matthew, do you have those pictures? Yes. Can you get those? Yeah. So Augustus Caesar takes the throne in 27 BC. He reigns to 14 AD. <coughs> Here are some things that happened during his reign and we'll look at that temple in a second. The day of his birth began being celebrated with 12 days of something that the Romans called Adventus. 12 days of Advent. When the Son of God, at least as the Romans saw him, showed up in the ivory palaces, the cult of emperor worship began celebrating it with 12 days, not of Christmas, but of Advent. Poets began writing peace and joy to the world because Augustus will bring Catholic, universal, peace. Interesting use of the words, huh? Universal peace and joy since he was God's son. The slogan, there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved, was popularized throughout the Roman Empire to the point by the way, when I say in here right now, uh, change, is that a poli poli political slogan? Mm -hmm. Yes. It is, isn't it? And you can associate that with a political leader, can't you? Mm -hmm. How about this one? Read my lips, no new taxes. <laughs> Some of you older ones, can you recognize that one? <laughs> uh, political slogans have a way of being attached to a persona. Well. The political slogan, there is no name except or save Augustus by which men can be saved, was attached to Augustus Caesar, who called himself the Son of God, throughout 
can't get to it. Throughout the entire Roman Empire. He maintained his own priesthood, and in his honor, here's what would happen. Bob would come forward to a priest of Augustus, and he would say, in the name of Augustus, to honor Augustus, your sins are forgiven you. For a price, of course. What a strange Roman idea that you could pay somebody and have your sins forgiven. Do you think that the spirit of Rome extends beyond the borders of Rome? Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Yes. Well, maybe even past the centuries that Rome was said to exist. Turn with me to Matthew 16. <coughs> there, there. There. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? What an interesting thing. He's chosen to be in a specific area. This area, Caesarea Philippi, is, Lord, not even visible on that map. Caesarea Philippi is in northern Israel. It's in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the only place in Israel you can routinely see snow. So what a strange thing for our southern Christmas, or our American Christmases, huh? Indelibly linked to snow. Well, in Israel, there's only one place you would ever see snow, and it's at the mount, top of Mount Hermon. And in the foothills of Mount Hermon is the city Caesarea Philippi, where, because it's in foothills, there are large um, sheer drop-offs in the mountains that act as kind of an ancient movie screen, if you will. Something that you could sit and stare and see something uh, portrayed in larger-than-life status on it. Folder that says We'll move past that. And on this uh, mountain drop, there is a grotto to Pan. There is a grotto to Augustus. There are grottos in cut into the hillside. So you'd have to picture behind me the pictures that I don't have, cut into the hillside are statues and images of these leaders. And to give you an idea, Pan, who was there, by the way, Mithras is there too. They committed human sacrifice on Pan. So how do you commit human sacrifice on Pan? There was an appendage associated with males that was many feet long, and they actually impaled people on it, right there. Right? That was a sacrifice to Pan. How about that? Next to it was the temple to Augustus, right in the center. I have pictures of it that are just not with me. Artist renditions of it and also what's left in the hillside. Immediately to the side of Augustus Caesar's monument, his temple, the Son of God, are what the Greeks considered the gates of hell. 
because this was a place you could go throw your babies. They'd go down a stream into rocks. And if blood came out the other side, they'd been accepted into Hades, the underworld. Think the Roman spirit's still alive? about that. It's not just a political issue, is it? It might even be a spiritual one. You have to picture, though, these guys from... Yes! Yes! We got them! Look, advance those. I'm sorry, I'm excited now. Do you see right? Y'all might have to look at both. This edge here, this is uh, a relief. It's a rounded edge in the side of the mountain that is 30, 40 feet high from here to here. And what would be in it would be a statue. And then off to a side of it is an entrance into a labyrinth that is a temple worship. Keep going, Matthew. Show me some of the others. This is the cave that is the gates of hell. How about that? Uh, go again. Look how big that is. And in it would be a monument to the God. One of these is Mithras, the God who is light, sun, who's driving out darkness. Of course, he seems to be thoroughly <coughs> overcome and surrounded by darkness. Go ahead. What's that say? Sanctuary pan. Keep going. One more time. Oh, the temple of Augustus. When you read this, it makes it very clear, you can see in this relief on the bottom, it came out some distance from the mountain. It had Roman columns, it had steps, it had all of those things. And it was very clear that when Herod built this, he was trying to say, the king of the Jews accepts you as the son of God. We will pay you tribute. We will be your subjects, subordinate to you. In fact, I'll build you a temple that Romans from all over the world can rush into the land of the God of Israel and worship you as God. How amazing. So we got these country disciples who are mostly from the Galilee area, recognizable by their accent to everyone else. Come on, those of you that grew up in the South, you don't know what that's like? <laughs> recognizable by everybody else into some viewed as somewhat uneducated. And they're standing here with this as the backdrop. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? What a place for this question. Do they say I'm like Pan? requiring your death in grotesque ways? Do they say that I'm like Augustus, the Son of God on earth? Do they say that I'm like the underworld, devouring your babies? Who do people say that I am? What a great place for this question. And listen to the ways that it relates to our lives. During this season of grotesque, idolatrous, Romanesque celebrations. Who do people say that he is? Is he the Roman son of God? Is he sitting on a city, sitting on seven hills? What is it? Who is he? Your life has an opportunity 
to say. When early Christians celebrated Jesus, they did it through Jewish festivals. You know why? They were Jews. Keep going through those slides. See if you see one of the Jewish little boy. Oh, how about that? What's he carrying, saints? Torah. Torah. The Torah is the word of God. How about that? And his arms wrapped in phylacteries or tefillin, if you like. Uh, not the stuff you coat pants with. This has got the book of Deuteronomy written on it. It's wrapped around his arm. So a young man carrying the Word of God with the Word of God wrapped around his arms and you see the little box on his head and the Word of God on his head. This is what Jews celebrated. The only birthday you celebrated as a Jew was your 13th birthday in ancient Israel. Not your first. By the way, was there a year zero? We go from 1 BC to 1 AD. Isn't that interesting? The Romans gave us so many things that are backwards, that are wrong, that are incomplete, that are manipulations. The early believers didn't celebrate Jesus' birthday because Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. I'm not saying celebrating birthdays wrong. I'm telling you it simply didn't occur. Do you think it's any mistake that it's after Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire is the first time we have a Christ Mass on December 25th celebrating Jesus' birthday. This was a practice of the Romans. It was not biblical. Jewish practices are tied to the Scripture. Period. So, but what about Hanukkah? Well, it is tied to at least scriptural events. Things that occurred in between books of the Bible. All of them relate to honoring the Scripture. Honoring the God of the Scripture. None of them relate to honoring Roman institutions. As later Christians became acquainted with the Word in their own language. Because by the year 400, you have to understand something has happened. In the year 100, for instance... The Bible is being translated into every language. By the year 200, it had been translated into more than 400 languages. You hear that? By the year 200, the Bible had been translated into more than 400 languages. By the year 400, it had been reduced to one. The language of the Romans. All others were illegal. Latin only. Stayed that way into the 19th century in Italy. But in the 14, 15, 1600s, gradually, people began getting Bibles in their own language. You know, in 1555, the Parliament in England, after receiving the Word in their own language for the first time, did something. As a nation, the Parliament banned Christmas. You know why? When they read it, they didn't see it there. They rejected it as purely a Roman Catholic creation. He said no. Well, that was England. How, how about the United States? In 1659, the Puritans that were in New England rejected and banned Christmas by saying, here, here's the official quote, men do more dishonor to Christ in these 12 days than in the other 12 months of the year combined. So, well, is this just uh, anti-Catholicism? No, not at all. 
many of the things that are happening that they say dishonors Christ are happening well outside the borders of a Catholic church. You know what the origin of Christmas caroling is? If you went to Mass and you could only sing in Latin because that was the holy language, right? After a while, if you don't speak Latin, that gets kind of boring. They wanted songs they could sing in their own language. And they couldn't be hymns because they weren't in a holy language. So, hence, caroling. Caroling was supposed to be songs that were religious in nature, but in your own language. But you know what it degenerated into? Singing for beer. Every time that they went out caroling, the poor people who could not afford finer alcohols and spirits began to ask for them as payment. This became, became such a problem that people of social standing began to despise caroling, hence the kind of Scrooge things that are written through history about people uh, being mean to the carolers, right? It was kind of like a Halloween. I will give you something if you give me something, trick or treat kind of thing. So when the Puritans banned this in 1659 in the United States, it stayed banned for a while. In the mid-1700s, it began to return. <coughs> this time, though, it had a tamer persona. They did some things. They got rid of caroling. Nobody's singing for, for beer anymore. They focused on indoor celebrations instead of drunken block parties. And while it was indoors, it became more family-oriented. This was the first time that we began to see Christmas trees and stuff appearing again. In the 1800s, especially in New York, especially of all of New York, the Dutch areas of New York, what we think of as our modern Christmas celebration was really cemented. It became solid because of two men. One is Clement Clark Moore. This is probably the most famous figure associated with Christmas other than Santa Claus or uh, the Roman Catholic version of Jesus. In 1822, Mr. Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas. This was a 56-line poem that for generations defined what to expect on Christmas Day. He was a professor of Greek and Oriental literature. This gave him access to all of the things that I've told you about. And he began to work them into his poem for two reasons. One, because they existed in history. And two, because... They were existing practices among people already, and he wanted it to appeal to people. Two of the major things that he did was he took a man named St. Nicholas, a historical figure I'll tell you about in the last little bit of this message, and a Dutch rendition of St. Nicholas called Center Klaus, and he merged their concepts, their personas. St. Nicholas was famous for giving gifts. Center Klaus, famous for a lot of things. Center Klaus had a demon-like figure that followed him wherever he went. So Center Klaus would come in your house, and he might give you something nice. But right behind him was a demon to give you something nasty. Hence a naughty and nice list. Center Klaus flew through the sky, propelled by... Reindeer. This is because the Norse god, Odin, 
flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Eight-legged horse became eight reindeer. Center Klaus became merged with Odin. Center Klaus lived in an area that was cold. So he had winter gear on. Now St. Thomas, I'm sorry, Thomas Nass, not a saint, the other figure associated with American versions of Christmas, he comes later in the 1800s. He builds on his predecessor's work. If you didn't know anything about Thomas Nast, if I say donkey and elephant, what does that mean to you? Political parties. Um, if I say Uncle Sam, what does that mean to you? Government, a nation, right? Thomas Nast was an American iconographer. I can't say that word. He's an American... Say it again. Iconographer. That's it. He assigned icons and made them popular in America. He's the one that first drew the donkey and first drew the elephant. He's the one that drew the character of Uncle Sam and made that popular. But you know what his most famous work is? A fat guy in a red suit. The reason that Americans see Santa Claus the way they do is because that's how Thomas Nast drew him, not because it was historically accurate. And it caught on. We liked the grandfatherly figure. And they gave him a pipe because a pipe was popular in those days. Thomas Nast lived today. Santa would not have a pipe. As we're doing some of this, I think it's probably best to tell you some good things about Christmas. I hope that when you hear about Caesarea Philippi and you see the background of pagan revelry that is going on, and this is where Jesus chose to take his stand in Matthew 16 and say, but who do you say that I am? Oh, Lord, some say this, some say Who do you say that I am? This is where Simon gets the blessing. This is where he gets it right. He got a revelation from heaven. It might even be the high point in his entire life. That same backdrop exists today. The same contrast exists today. There are some that just plunge headlong into it and could care less. Commercialism rules, so commercialism will rule the church, will rule your family. There are others who reject it out and out altogether, and they simply close their door and turn off the lights like they do with every other holiday and say, we don't participate. I want to submit to you a couple ideas before we get to the real St. Nicholas. Number one, Jesus did not avoid going to Caesarea Philippi. Number two, while standing in the midst of all of this pagan idolatry, he used it as an example to illustrate who he really was. Maybe this could be our Christmas season. Maybe we could choose not to avoid it, but to go plunge headlong into the middle of it and illustrate who he really is. Before we move on from that, I want to tell you, wherever you are in the spectrum, though, I've been there, and I'll honor it. If you see the tree is a bad thing and want to throw it out or not buy it, if you see presents and all that, I, I think the best thing Christians could do for Christmas is focus less on giving their children gifts and bragging about the number of gifts they gave their children and how their children racked up, racked up, 
Go give them to somebody who can't get it. The most fun I've ever had on Christmas bar none was in Mexico last year. We gave everything we had away there. And, I, and most of the church participated in a fast to help produce some of that stuff. That was the most fun I've ever had, period. I felt closer to Jesus during that point. And then we came home and ate cookies and did all the normal things that you do. Uh, in any case, the real St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas, I think, is one of the more redeeming things that you can find in the Christmas story. And the reason that I love this is because it's something that the church world would like to throw out as bad. And it really is maybe the only good thing that you could hang your hat on and say, no, this is a reason to do some of the things that we do. He's born in the 3rd century, 200s, in a place called Patera, Lycia. Today, this is present-day Turkey on the map. Turkey's never seen a reindeer. They wouldn't know what a slave was. They certainly don't dress in big, fluffy coats. He survived the worst persecution that church history ever recorded under a man named Diocletian. This occurred in the 200s. Diocletian wiped out hundreds and thousands of Christians. It didn't get as bad as it was under Diocletian again until the Reformation. The Reformation was the next time that hundreds of thousands of Christians were burned or killed. He showed up in 325 at the Nicene Council where we get the Apostles' Creed. He was there. The real man that history records was there. Of all of the church creeds, one of the only creeds that seems to be uh, more biblically based would be the one in 325. By the time we get to the 400s, they've taken the very same creed and tweaked it to the point that it's, it's difficult for Bible-believing Christians to accept. But what history records him best for is not that he was a saint in the Catholic Church, although he was. It was not that he was supposed to have done three miracles, but he probably did. What history records him best for is he was a wealthy merchant's son. And he had some money. And he became aware of needs in his very own town. And being adamantly in love with Jesus, he saw somebody else's need as his opportunity to do something for Jesus. So there was a man that had three daughters. And in those days, to get a daughter married, you had to provide a dowry so somebody would marry her. I know, things have been turned upside down since then. Huh? Mm -hmm. Her daddy had no dowry, so there were no wedding suitors. This meant that all three women would likely be left only one occupation available for them. And it wasn't very honorable. And Nicholas became concerned. So he was looking for a way to have some secret giving. He wanted to be able to bless the family. He wanted to be able to help the girl who was about to face a life of prostitution. Where he could receive no honor for it. So he threw a sack of gold through a window. Just in time to save her. Then as the story goes, when the second one came about, and she's faced with being of age and having no marriage suitors, he found another way to secretly bless the family. 
And this happened a third time. Well, you can imagine news would travel fast in a small town. Was not long and little kids were hanging up socks next to the fire hoping to catch gold that would fly down the chimney or through an open window. This is where we get stockings from. Not exactly a religious uh, icon, stockings. And yet it comes from people wanting to be blessed by God in a biblical manner. Then, as this story begins to get told of how the three young women were saved, St. Nicholas is growing in stature in the town, not because everybody knows he did it, but because he's a man who loves the Lord. And in those days, people were separated by their dress. He became a bishop in the town. And bishops in those days had bright colored garments, sometimes even red. And the children would come to them, and parents would bring sick children to come to them so that the bishop could lay his hands on their head and pray for them. Just like the Bible says, one of you is sick, bring him to the elders. The prayer of faith will make the sick person well. This has been twisted into a what do you want for Christmas? What St. Nicholas might have asked, might have done, is pray for the sick, prophesied over the children. And maybe that story's just been corrupted the same way that Odin got merged with Sinterklaas later. As the story gets told to the Norse people, as things travel further and further and further up, they practice syncretism, just like it happens today. They take some of what is true and mix it in with what they already have. Just like, just like today, when you go by the average picture of Jesus, he does not have very Jewish features. They began to remake him into their image, which meant thicker winter coats, it meant customs like theirs if they liked to drink milk and eat cookies, and that became his food. If they were accustomed to seeing reindeer in the forest, then reindeer was his method of transportation. And since people hung socks on chimneys to catch gold, then maybe he came down a chimney at night. And if you already had a uh, perversion that was him with a demon, well, maybe that could just become a naughty and nice list. I would suggest that righteousness has a legacy. Turn with me to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, Let's examine that for just a second. What if this man had quit after the first daughter? What if he had quit after the second? What if he had not gone on to become bishop in the town? What if he had decided at some point that it would cost him too much to help someone else? His righteous deeds have had a legacy. The only redeeming thing about celebrating the birth of Christ December 25th when you absolutely know He was not born, the only thing redeeming about having Christmas mangers when our, our Lord was born in the spring in a cave, the only thing redeeming about having magi show up two years too early in our Christmas plays, 
The only thing redeeming about the entire charade is that through the centuries there have been righteous men doing righteous things. And you kind of have a choice to face, and it's the same choice that you had at Caesarea Philippi. You can avoid the situation altogether, hide from it and call it wrong. Or you can decide that among the gods, the gods men worship, Jesus is supreme in your life. And then live a life that demonstrates it, whether you're in Caesarea Philippi or not. And for us, Caesarea Philippi is not so much a region as a month of the year. I tell you, you get to face this again when Easter comes around. Choke that word out. Asterisk. Easter. We get to decide whether or not the pagan holidays are bigger than our love and personification of who Jesus is or whether He is bigger than they are and then approach these holidays in that way. Yeah. See, we are Gentiles. Everything that has come to us from our days of the week to the way that we number the hours in a day to the way that we count the days in a year is all biblically wrong. But none of you are fighting to get on a lunar calendar, are you? None of you want to throw away your wristwatch and reject a 24-hour time period uh, of counting and go back to counting from dark to light. None of us want to do those things. But we have a hard time when we find out about the pagan roots of Christmas. I'd ask you to reach in your pocket and take out a dollar. If I can show you three or four pagan symbols on it, will you stop using that? How about when we go out to the car in the parking lot? Were those made by Christians in some Amish factory? No? So where does it end? At what point do we decide that we need to not grow weary in doing what is good and stand up in Caesarea Philippi and let our lives proclaim who he is. By the way, who in here has lost relatives? <laughs> really? Like 3% of you have lost relatives? Who has lost relatives in here? <coughs> you win any of them over by boycotting any of the family events? Did any of them come and say, since you did not participate in our celebration this year, we now know that we want to be more like you? <laughs> Have you tried it? Who in here has tried it? I have. Didn't work for me. Yeah. Didn't work for me. At some point, we have to decide that we can stand in Caesarea Philippi with 40-foot statues of perverse, ridiculous, pagan revelry standing behind us and say, no, you're the Son of God. We have to decide that the light is not scared of the darkness. By the way, anybody go buy a Christmas tree this year? Don't be scared. I did. You know what I did not have in mind? Mithras. Or you. Or Sol Invictus. You know, we strung lights on it. I was not pushing back any darkness from the winter solstice. To me, it was just a pretty treat that my kids enjoy seeing. It smells nice. And at the bonfire, we like to burn. Yeah. <laughs> my dachshund gets very excited because we put some Sprite in the water at the base to keep it green and the dachshund's got a buffet <laughs> see at different times these things have meant different things to different people and what I'm encouraging you to do is finish this verse 
Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I think it's high time that the church stood up and quit giving up. I think it's time that you can point to what is obviously a Roman nastiness that has pervaded everything and still worship Jesus. Have you never been in a group of people that were wrong and you could smile, worship Jesus right alongside them and they noticed that something was different about you? I have. Many times. Know exactly what it's like to go stand in a room full of several hundred people, none of whom were born again, but they're eating Jesus on a regular basis. And they all noticed that something was different. What happens if you don't go? What happens if you just point to your rightness and their wrongness? Therefore, as we have, I would say December is a month of opportunity, saints. I got relatives that don't speak the name Jesus unless they're cursing and it's by mistake, except in December. And then they do the funniest thing. Those who are uh, maybe the most far gone in some ways buy us the most religious gifts. You know why? Because they're trying to connect with us. See, as we have opportunity. Let us do good to not just the saved ones. All people. If Paul could go eat meat that had been sacrificed on behalf of a demon and not think a thing in the world was wrong with it, can we really not participate in these holidays? By the way, what are you going to do if you live in India as a missionary? What are you going to do if you live in any Gentile area of the world as a missionary? Are you going to stand and just tell them all of their holidays are bad? I would suggest that you need to find God in whatever culture you live in and magnify what is right. You need to glorify Him in whatever you see that is good. There's certainly enough that's not. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. If St. Nicholas had not cared more about somebody else than himself, then I might not be able to find anything redeeming about this holiday. But this is the one time a year where people are trying to imitate that attitude. Yeah. And maybe they're just buying a gift for you because they're scared you bought one for them and they don't want to be embarrassed. But it is a place to start, isn't it? It's a place to start. Let's take it. Let's take it as a place to start. And then with your children, if you want to share Santa Claus with them, some of you do and some don't, and I understand that, share the real Santa Claus with them. And if you decide to abstain from trees because of what it means, then find something to replace it with. But one thing's clear from history. No matter what people's cultural customs have been, December something's going to get celebrated. There's no question about that. Something is going to get celebrated. Why don't we stand? Our services are not usually over until 12.15, 12.20.
It's 11.30. We did a Christmas play. You got to learn more history than anything else, but maybe how to view the God of history in history. Now maybe for December, we could worship him a little bit and ask that we could take something of his presence to them out there. Whoever them is. Maybe you could walk away from something in this meeting that you could take to somebody there. I mean, that is unless you don't know anybody who's dying or hurting. You don't know anybody whose life would be better if they knew what you knew. But if you do know all of those things, please don't run around and say, let's keep Christ in Christmas while you withhold that gift from them. Let's not run around and decry Santa Claus when you will not stretch a finger to help your neighbor. Right? Let's not grow weary in doing what is right. It's time that we reap our harvest. I want to worship and gather something. Amen. Let's gather something to go out and harvest with. Amen? Amen. Amen.
Jesus, we worship Jesus. 
which gives us the chance as the body of Christ to practice with each other and to make perfect with our relatives. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, uh, we're going to bring Alicia up here to the center of the room so that her church family can join hands around her, lay hands on her, pray for her. Because it looks like about Tuesday. Yeah. Come on. Tuesday, we will have a new women baby. We can't say boy or girl yet because it's a surprise. Isn't that cool? It's not too late to name him Harris. While we're working on these pagan. Uh, adoptions, you know, Eric is kind of a Viking. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Um, so we want to pray for her, and then there is a shower being held. Most likely Saturday. Saturday. For, for the new Clement baby. And it'll be guys and girls, everyone welcome. We're just going to come and love on the new baby. To be clear, it's okay to shower between now and then, but this will be a special shower. <laughs>